Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for downloading this podcast. And do yourself a favor to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Welcome, it's Jeff Woods. I'm glad you're here. And this time, in episode 12 of the Blue Hotel podcast, a different approach altogether. And quite a different theme. Relatable to many, and might I add, too many. You see, so far in the Blue Hotel podcast series, with special guests in each, every one of them brings their own unique perspective around relationships and sexuality, which is what this is all about. The podcast for the open-minded. And our guests come here to entertain and to educate, to enlighten, to inspire. And while consent has been a thread throughout, rather organically, we've yet to fully go down that path in an entire hour. Episode 12, combining themes of consent and crime and punishment, themes of assault and harm, and when it happens, what can happen, and how things are done in Canada and beyond, and how things could be done and how things are slowly being done differently. Sometimes, it's a story of innocence obliterated. Also a story of hope and compassion and community and caring. And you know, it's a story of precedence. It may not be easy to listen to some parts of it. Other parts are very warm and there's some humor because that's how she is. So if you're ready, we're about to begin. And when our conversation concludes in 65 minutes, I invite you to come back anytime and listen to any of the other 11 previous episodes with other special guests and lots more to come from the Blue Hotel Podcast. Our special guest this time is Marley Liss, and she has made history by being the first person in North America to experience a process in the judicial system for three years. She burned to ask the man who raped her why he did it. Hers is a story of justice, but not in the context many of us are used to. It's a story of turning something horrible into healing. It's the story of our award-winning speaker, restorative justice advocate and author who's made history in justice system which has led her to supporting thousands in healing shame and transforming trauma. She's been featured in countless publications, as you might imagine. She's shared her story in speaking engagements, talking to people like the U.S. military, the National Restorative Justice Symposium, Fordham School of Law, University of Toronto, Matt Allison University, Trauma and Recovery Conference, and many more. She's also one of 25 survivors on a panel for the National Action Plan, to end gender-based violence. She's also got a podcast designed to help people shed shame and love your body and claim your worth. It's called the Sensual Revolution Podcast. It's got some 33 episodes. We'll talk a bit about all of this. To say that she is 2SLGBTQIA plus positive is the understatement of the year. She's booking speaking engagements around the world some six months out, which makes it all the more special she has granted the Blue Hotel podcast and yours truly time here now. We say welcome to Marley Liss. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. And it's such a pleasure to hear my bio read back in that fantastic 
radio voice. It's really great. Let's back up a bit. You know, there's so much here that I had to consider carefully. I think I'd like to back up and go to a world before the world changed in the way that it did for you. Take us back to all of this, I guess, through the filter in which you saw the world before it profoundly changed. Um, I was always someone who definitely would be like the rainbow sunshine friend. I feel like if anything, I kind of shut down those heavier emotions like sadness and anger. And I was really just a little bundle of joy, maybe naive at times, maybe like trusting people a little too much, this kind of thing. But as much as I was having a lot of fun, I was in college, I was studying social work, I was on the dance team. I also hadn't questioned or learned about a lot of things. I wasn't aware of terms like rape culture. I really struggled with body image a lot and I, you know, didn't really know why or where that came from. And there was just a lot that I didn't yet understand about myself. And the time period you're talking about is right before I turned 21. So I was in those kind of formative years as well. Innocence. It ends in different ways, in different contexts for everyone. Of course, to generalize ever so slightly, it ends uh, with women often in circumstances that a lot of men can't understand, with exceptions. But was that sort of the first time you really felt like things were never going to be the same for you when, when you were assaulted as you were? Take us... Take us back to now it's happened. Mm. How, how, how much trauma was immediate and, and how much came in time? Yeah, it's interesting because looking back on like even from my high school years, I definitely experienced a lot of sexual trauma, but I never labeled it that. It was so normalized within the context of hookup culture and partying and alcohol and all these things that I never... It was never bad enough for me to really label it as what it was. Um, it wasn't until this sexual assault happened in 2016 when I was 21 that it was bad enough that it was undeniable. And it was one of those situations where I said no multiple times, like my mouth was covered. It was violent in a way and it lasted so long as well. And um I remember saying to a friend right after, I remember saying, I know this is the kind of thing that changes your life, but I don't really know how that's going to look for me yet. And that's such a weird feeling. But then I remember a few weeks later saying, I knew that rape impacted people. Of course I knew that, but I had no idea the extent of the effect it would have on me. And it really did shift my entire world. I struggled so much with self-blame, um, that piece around like innocence and trusting people. I really beat myself up for that. Um, I beat myself up for having expected love in the world. And I also was someone who tried to power through things. I was like, no, I'm someone who can brush it off, be fine. But my body wouldn't let me. It was not mind over matterable. I found like I tried to go to school and pretend I was all good, nothing had happened. And I ended up having um, my body break out in hives, my ears rang, and I thought I was having an anaphylactic reaction. I'm not allergic to anything, but I went up to 
teachers and props. And I was like, I need help. I need to call an ambulance. I'm having an anaphylactic reaction. And they were like, eventually someone said, sweetie, like, I think you're having a panic attack, right? So I quickly realized, oh, this isn't something I can just pretend to be fine on, um, which sent me into a really deep spiral. And I'd say for about a year, I really struggled with PTSD, panic attacks, general fear, and like just really this sense of devastation that my whole worldview had been so rocked. Marley, um, I want you to tell me what you think is important to reveal about um, sort of timeline. And, and, and so things like, did you know the person? Things like, how soon did you tell somebody? Who did you tell? Those, mm-hmm. those details. What's important to share in the context mm-hmm. of your whole story? Yeah, love that phrasing, all the <laughs> trauma-informed communication you're using. It's really, really beautiful. You're already weaving in some themes of consent of, right, of what feels okay for you to share today, what feels right. right. Um, so, yeah, I – let me think. Let me think about what feels right to share. So, yeah, the context of it was I had actually spent the summer – kind of on this big adventure of me getting to know myself. And I was studying social work, like I said, but there were things I was struggling with. And I said, you know, this is going to be the summer where I kind of work to change that stuff. And I somehow found myself on an adventure in British Columbia, road tripping with a friend I just made. And eventually I was worried about running out of money and I happened to cross a job on a woman's center and it was like a meditation healing center. And I was 21 with like majority like 50 and up year old woman who lived on a healing center. And so, of course, throughout the summer, I was just there to have an experience, make money. But I heard all these stories, um, stories of loss and divorce and trauma and life changing catalysts that led people to live on a healing center. And through that, it became very clear to me that, wow, when I go back to school for the fall semester, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to work with women. I want to help change some of these things that are causing people so much pain. And I was quite fired up about it. I was excited about it. So I got home from that and I actually emailed the person who was the captain of the dance team I was on. And I said, hey, let's do a workshop because so many of the girls we dance with, including ourselves, struggle with empowerment, with self-worth, with um, empowerment around sexuality and body image specifically. So we were like, yes, let's do it. We're fired up. And that same night, so this was a week after I got home, that same night I went out with my friends and we were drinking, we were having a good time. And that's when I met this person who was a complete stranger to me. And the context was kind of that I lost my friends in the club, so I couldn't find them. I had plans to sleep at their place. When I bumped into this guy, he was like, oh, I'll help you look for them. I'll help you find your friends. Couldn't find them. I said, you know what? I'm drunk. I'm exhausted. I'm just going to go get a cab and go to their place. I know at least one person is home to let me in. And he said, okay, I'll make sure you get a cab. And then we went outside to get a cab, taxi pulled up. He said, what's the address? I said, the name in the building. And he said, 
oh, wow, I actually live in the same building. That's where I'm going as well. And he did, which is really a wild thing in Toronto. It's a big city, right? So we said, okay, well, makes sense to split the fare. We'll just share a cab. And we get in right away. He starts being very touchy to the point where I was surprised that the cab driver didn't say anything because I was like, hey, buddy, like, I'm so tired. And then when we got to the building, I started calling my friends. Hey, I'm here. Will you let me in? And they weren't answering. And we waited a while. I kept trying to call them. And I couldn't remember the unit number either. So that was like, I couldn't just go up. And he said, you know what? Like, I'm happy for you to just kind of lie down in my unit for a bit while you try contacting them and I'll get you some water. And even telling, I don't feel it so much right now, but even telling this story a million times and knowing how much I do about trauma, I still have that little self-blame piece that's like, that's when you should have left, right? But yeah, so I ended up going to his unit and for a moment he was very kind. Like he said, he said, lie down here. He got me a glass of water. And then he left the room and about a minute later he came back and he just totally 180'd. Um, He like pulled my pants down and started assaulting me. And I was, you know, thinking in my head, what are you supposed to say in this situation? I said, you remember, you're supposed to say no. He said no a bunch of times and then it processed for me, oh, this isn't working. Like my no doesn't have any power right now. It's not doing anything. And eventually I just kind of froze and that's when he – sort of put his hand over my mouth and started assaulting me. And it lasted for hours, like four or five hours. And I know that because I didn't sort of come out of that freeze state until I realized that the sun was up and I realized it was the next day. And he went to the bathroom for a moment. And that's when I had that sort of come back into my body moment where I said, oh my God, like it is the next day. And something about that kicked me into high gear. And I grabbed my clothes and I ran out and I found a cab that I could and I went back to my place. And then I remember very well just being in total shock, but standing outside my friend slash roommate's door for what felt like an eternity. It's probably like 20 minutes and I had my hand up ready to knock. And I remember thinking I either knock and I tell her now or I might not ever tell anyone. And eventually I did find the courage to knock and went in and I told her what happened Um, and she was incredibly supportive. I mean, I could kind of just keep going chronologically, but I want to, I want to know where you're guiding the conversation. Yeah. And I, and I will. I have tears now. Like this is really Mm -hmm. heavy for me Mm. because you think of um, all the people in your life and you think of, I think of you and then I think of your family and then I think of everyone I've ever known that. Mm. So you told your friend, which is great. Like you said, you, you if you hadn't, you may have been silent forevermore. Mm. Who did you tell next? And, and, and when did you go to someone of an authoritarian place? Yeah, so it was pretty much right after that. And there's so much... Um, you know, research and just stories around how meaningful it is when the first person you tell, if you tell anyone, responds in a way where they believe you and they care. So I'm forever grateful to that friend for not questioning at all, not asking for proof, but just being there. But we actually went to 
authorities right away because we didn't know what to do, right? We'd only really seen this in movies and the media and heard stories. So I actually Googled, what do you do when you're raped? And it said, you should write down what happened and you should go to the hospital and get a rape kit. So we followed that Google advice and we went to the hospital and I ended up doing this rape kit, which was really difficult, really um, invasive and triggering. And at the same time, the nurse was so human and compassionate and that meant so much to me. She even like teared up a bit at one point. And I think often people want to apologize for tearing up, but I think it's really meaningful. I think it's such a sign of of empathy and care. So yeah, that meant a lot to me. And after the rape kit was done, she said, and this is the moment where I really feel like so much can change in terms of awareness and understanding of justice and access. But she said, you know, you can either have us call the police now and you can report or you can go home. So to me, those two options were you can do something or you can do nothing. And I didn't know about restorative justice at the time. I had no idea that that even existed. And I didn't want nothing. And I couldn't fathom going home and trying to pursue normalcy. I was like, what am I going to do? Watch Netflix? Like, I, I can't. Like, I need to do something. So that's really my only motivation to report. That's really what drove me to report. So we ended up going to the police station from there. And right away, the process was a big contrast to what the nurse was embodying, that empathy and care. It was very cold. It was very neutral. If they show too much compassion, there's an implication that they believe you and are therefore biased. So in a moment when you're so like vulnerable, just need care, you get this cold neutrality. So right away, I was like, I don't like this process. And that's kind of when I started going through the punitive system. And, and at this point, you didn't have the, the hindsight and the knowledge that you're now sharing. So, so it must have been to have them be kind of cold and, and, and not know why and have no compassion at that level. What was going through your mind? I was just so in shock. Like I've been able to watch those videos back. I watched the, the police tape from when I made the initial report before I, I um, went to the preliminary trial and I just look like such a baby. I just look like such a baby in those videos. Like I'm so kind of this like shrunk down version of myself and I'm tired and I'm confused and I'm in shock and I'm also hungover and I haven't slept at all. Google had said to write down what happened and I was really using that as a crutch because I wasn't ready to say out loud what had happened. Anyone who's shared their trauma out loud knows like how difficult it can be to voice it, especially right after when you're still processing it yourself. So with the nurse, I was so grateful for that piece of paper. She said, what happened? And I said, I can't, like, I can't explain it, but here, just like take this piece of paper and read it. And when I got to the police station, I said the same thing. And when I handed it to them, they said, we're going to have to keep this as evidence and we still need you to voice everything that happened. So it felt like a betrayal of trust and a violation of my boundaries right away. And I think that that's something that's so important to emphasize is how much the punitive system, which is trying to enforce consent, essentially, 
is constantly violating your boundaries and taking away your voice and your right to consent. So right away, I felt like the powerlessness that I felt during assault was affirmed in that police process where they said, we don't really care how you feel. We now have a goal we need to get to. Whatever we have to do to get there is what we have to do. And when you say they said that, they said that in their actions. Exactly. What I felt from the very beginning of the process was that I was just totally in the dark the whole time. There was no, hey, we have to take this paper as evidence. There was none of that. It was just like, this is ours as evidence now. Now tell us what happened. There was never explanation. And for the whole two years following going through the punitive system, I constantly felt like I had no idea what was going on. And I was the last person to be made aware of what was going on. Before we get to how things have changed because of Mm -hmm. what you did and the process through which you went in, in the court system, do you think anything has changed in that regard, in that part of the process? Because I get your point about they didn't want to look biased or they didn't want to look too compassionate to suggest Mm -hmm. bias. But explaining somebody a process is not compassion. It's here's what we're going to do. Here's what you can expect. Do you think anything of that has changed or did you try to affect some change in that regard? Absolutely. So I do think there's an increase in trauma-informed approaches and people having a deeper understanding or respect for what that means I'm starting to see like trauma-informed trainings for lawyers for police members like that's starting to spread a little bit more but something that's interesting is so this took place in Ontario Canada in Toronto and in Ontario it's in the victim's bill of rights so it's in our legislation that you're supposed to be made aware of restorative justice as an option when you report But even though it's in the legislation, that never happens. I have never met one person who has said that's happened, and I've connected with a lot of survivors. So that leads me to question, well, why isn't that happening? And what I think is that it comes down to personal biases that are a result of our cultural conditioning. So our culture really teaches us that this is the way we're supposed to handle harm, um, and sexual assault, and that's the way to do it, and it's usually punishment, and that's end of story. There's no teaching in our culture of prioritizing care above that pursuit of punishment. We say pursuit of punishment at all costs, right? So there's no deep emphasis on, well, what is this person who is hurt? What do they actually need? It's interesting because the legislation is there, and on paper, Canada has some of the best sexual assault laws in the world, but it doesn't get, it's not followed through in action. So that's why I'm so passionate about storytelling, because I do think it comes down to like shifting hearts and minds. So if legislation is there in a perfect world, which we don't live in yet, to your point, (laughs) who would have brought that up? Would it have been somebody representing you? Would it have been prosecution against him? Would it have been... Uh, a judge who who would have in a perfect world who who had that responsibility in your estimation i want to say so many people <laughs> the nurse cuz that was my entry point speaking of the nurse was that looking back was the, was how she uh, proceeded you said with compassion so that's wonderful but in terms of you can do nothing or you can do this was that appropriate i'm not i'm, I'm asking i have no idea 
I see it. I interpret it as she had the compassion, but she didn't have the awareness. And I don't blame her for that, right? I think as most of us, as most of us don't, um, which is another reason I'm so passionate about telling this story over and over and getting it in the mainstream is that, I mean, again, in a perfect world, we don't have to say, what do we do after sexual violence? Because there's no sexual violence. But the same way my friend and I consulted Google and we said, what do you do? You know, what if in that moment Google had said, you contact a restorative justice agency? Or what if we had already listened to a podcast like this and said, I actually know about alternatives and I'm going to pursue those, right? So the nurse could have told me, the police could have told me, the first therapist I saw could have told me, the first lawyer I interacted with could have told me, the first advocate I interacted with, the first... um rape crisis hotline I sought to connect with could have told me, right? So there's so many potential entry points. So who knows at this point? The police know, your friend knows, the nurse knows. Tell me about who you led in to the knowledge Mm -hmm. of this and when. Great question. Very unasked question. So my, my roommates knew because I had told that one roommate, but actually the first person I ended up telling was my brother. And I felt like it was because I remember having this kind of, like I said, I, I, I um, am someone who likes to power through a lot. And I was very logical about it. I was like, I don't want to be the kind of person who, you know, after a car accident, someone never drives again. And I was like, I don't want to be scared of men forever. I don't want to be someone who had this experience and never talks to or trusts a man again. So out of that kind of logic, I told my brother first. Also because he's a really wonderful, like soft-hearted, sweet person, right? So I told him and it was too hard for me to tell the rest of my family. So I actually asked my brother to tell them for me. And I put that off for a bit. I was like, I don't want them to know because I knew it would break their hearts. I don't want them to be hurting. So I I tried dodging my mom's calls for a few days. And very quickly, she was like, what, like classic loving Jewish mother. She's like, what is going on? Like, why have you not gone back to me? So, and I knew that if I got on the phone with her, the second I said, hello, she'd, or hi, she'd be like, what is wrong? You sound like, you can hear it. So I just wasn't ready for that. I needed them to kind of process a bit before coming to me because I didn't want to have to hold space for their reactions either. Like I I couldn't. I couldn't in that moment. So I'm really grateful that my brother sort of did that for me and he had those conversations with, with them. Let me do this because I think it's the right time. I like to think that I'm a compassionate person and people listening have their levels of compassion. There's a place, though, where I go to this dark place when I think about these things. I think about um, my partner's kids. Or I think about the sister I didn't have. I think about all the women in my life and men because sexual assault isn't uh, gender-specific. Um, but I go to this dark place where I don't know that I could hold myself back from making it my life's mission to go and find the perpetrator and, mm-hmm. and deal with it in my own, you know, ridiculously um, uh, violent way that's in my mind out of out of out of just anger. 
-hmm. It's such an important and very interesting angle that I'd actually love to like write a full paper on someday. Like I just find it so fascinating because there's kind of these interesting questions of is that an instinctual fight response? Is it the way patriarchy conditions us to protect one another, right? What is it associated with masculinity? And I will say that that response is one that I get from men. That is a response I get from men. And I think it's important to say that there's nothing wrong with that response. But I do think there's something much more loving about letting that response be second to turning towards the survivor and saying, what would feel really supportive for you? What would feel really healing and caring for you right now? And I think when we learn to put that care and that instinct first, that's a much more loving world. And a much more, absolutely, and a much more productive uh, world um, because, yeah, uh, an eye for an eye makes this all blind kind of thing. Right. Um, so I like that. I like the way you framed that. Um, so, so it's in court, finally. How long between it happens and you're in the courtroom? Mm -hmm. So between the assault and the preliminary trial. So for me, I had to learn all this jargon. So I'll just say the preliminary trial is basically a smaller trial to see if there's enough evidence for the big trial. So the preliminary trial happened two years after the assault. And that's a pretty lengthy amount of time. Again, I felt pretty in the dark about the process that whole time. But I was also very necessarily focused on being okay, focused on my healing. Were you partnered at the time of the assault? No, I wasn't. I was like casually hooking up with people and it ended up being that this guy, I I have since realized that I'm lesbian, but I didn't know it at the time. So um, this guy that I was very casually seeing ended up being a witness in the court trial because they found his DNA during the rave kit and it was so incredibly awkward that for like two years he was like oh I had to go and like jizz into a cup for your trial like and it was like I wish we were not talking <laughs> oh little humor at all tragedy yeah <laughs> um do, do do you wish you it's, it's a weird question maybe but do you think that the complexion of it all might have been different had you been in a serious relationship and might that have relationship really been uh, uh, challenged by all of this? I, I could imagine perhaps if, is the, are these things you think about? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't like the idea and I don't, I think it's a false idea when people say things like we need to be healed before we're in a relationship because they don't think we're ever fully healed. But at the same time, I do not, I did not have the capacity to like be there for someone fully. It's really, it's really hard to say because I also had to figure a lot of things out. I think that experiencing trauma was also a catalyst for me to realize that my sexual orientation wasn't what I thought it was. And it was just such a confusing and challenging time. It's interesting um, that that would come up 
so much is it is it the uh, upswell of emotion and upswell of contemplation and the, the self-awareness came yeah i mean it definitely was the fact that i was diving so deep into therapy and healing but i was also reflecting on my relationship to sexuality and i had never done that i had just always gone through the motions of what you're supposed to do, right? Like I hit hot, you're supposed to have made out by this grade. You're supposed to get fingered in this grade. Like it's very, the way our culture scripts things is like it's prescribed and this is what you do and you just kind of do it. So I, like I'd said at the beginning, I had had a lot of experiences where I was like blackout drunk to the point that I don't even remember anything, but that gets so normalized in our culture. So I never questioned any of these things, like this kind of foundation of my sexuality, until this assault happened and I ended up in therapy talking about my relationship to sexuality. And so having that experience kind of led me to, to question and really look at that whole foundation and to feel my feelings around it and to start to sift out what felt authentic and empowering and what felt bad from the very beginning, but I just thought it was supposed to be that way. So it kind of came, kind of came with it. How powerful, and you alluded to it earlier about the self-blame where, you know, even still it comes up that moment where you're like, I should get out of here. This is, mm -hmm. this is not quite right, but you didn't. How powerful is self-blame and how enduring is it? And how do you get over it? Yeah. I mean, I think at this point, it's like a tiny, it's like the volume is very low on it. It's like volume mm -hmm. level one. You know what I mean? But I still notice it trying to be like, like trying to turn itself up. And then I'm like, no, like I have um, too much education and, and have done too much like healing around that to let it be the loudest thing. But it can be so painful. And at the same time, I really like to, I really feel like self-compassion and healing can be accessed through understanding the functionality and brilliance of our minds and bodies. And so I remember a therapist telling me that self-blame is so common and functional in some ways because it gives us the illusion of control. It makes us feel like we could have stopped that when maybe we actually couldn't have. And so it's kind of like this trade-off. It's like, do I want control and sense of control and self-blame or do I want helplessness and to be free of self-blame? So it's kind of this interesting trade-off, but I do think that letting go of self-blame is so important. And for me, like having deeper education around rape culture and self-blame and understanding the things that cause violence, including the perpetrator themselves in the driver's seat of that cause, but also all the moving parts of society that lead to violence, like locker room talk and um, conditioning and toxic masculinity and media that and pornography that normalizes like degradation towards women. All these things cause sexual violence, not me needing to lie down when I'm exhausted, right? Yeah, big, big journey for sure. Um, so logistically, wh where did he I, end up? Through, through these two years, where is he? 
So he doesn't get charged. So the preliminary trial was basically, like I said, it's them say it. It's them determining whether there's enough evidence. So we did this preliminary trial. The court experience was so awful. And, you know, like we see on TV, it never fun for the victims. I really felt like I was the one on trial. I felt like my whole life was being questioned. I had to show up as a very quote, quote, credible victim, not too much makeup, hair pulled back, not, you know, not too emotional, but not too stoic, like so scripted. You're advised that that's sort of the way you should play it? Play it? Yeah. I had an advocate sort of be like, you know, this sucks, but this is kind of what you got to do. And I remember them saying as well, and this comes back to that piece around throwing consent as a value out the window in a process fighting for consent, they said, no matter how uncomfortable a question makes you, you have to answer it. Otherwise, you can be charged as non-cooperative. And so in that, I have literally now lost my right to consent in a process where I'm so-called fighting for my right to consent. So you're in the you're in the courtroom and he's in the courtroom too? Yeah, so this was the second time I'd ever seen him in my life and he was sitting in the courtroom and he really just sat and stared at the ground the entire time. Which said to you what? His his body language? Anything? Um I mean avoidance, shame. I think something that's interesting as well is he never struck me as a person totally unaware of his actions and without remorse. There was this kind of interesting thing um, during the assault, and this is a bit intense for people listening, so just take care of yourself. But um, yeah, like throughout the assault, he'd kind of stop every so often and be like, this is so fucked up. I'm so sorry. And then he would continue. And yeah, I did the same. You kind of like jerked back like, what? A little bit. And that's what I felt as well. And it really sort of broke my brain for a while. So many of my therapy sessions were being like, hold on a sec. I'd always been taught that a rapist is a totally stoic, unemotional monster who jumps out of a bush. But this was a guy who was struggling with his own actions and having this kind of inner battle with himself, but also continuing rape. So it it was very confusing to me, but it ultimately became a doorway for me to humanize him and kind of fight for the justice outcome that I did pursue. And it is, I guess the word precedent setting isn't inappropriate, is it? It's so it really did change things or it's it's changing things. Tell us more about your decision to 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 do what you did and mm-hmm. how that went after the preliminary. So after the preliminary trial, I was like, that was crap. Like, (laughs) this system is crap. Like, I was like, that was horrible for me. He's done nothing except do whatever his lawyer told him to do. How is this going to change anything? How is this going to change anything? So another year went by after the preliminary trial where I didn't think much about the justice process. I was really focused on my own healing and moving forward with life. And so a year after that, so now it had been three years in total, I got subpoenaed for the criminal trial. So they said, yes, there's enough evidence. 
we're calling you to a criminal trial. And my first thought was, I'm going to drop the charges. I'm not doing this. I was like, I don't want to go back to trial and I'm going to drop the charges, which is so common. Frustration that puts you there or just you just wanted to walk away from it? Tell us where your head was in that. I didn't want to go back to trial because I knew how horrible it was for my mental, emotional well-being. I knew it was so painful for me. And then I didn't, I just didn't believe, and I still don't believe, in the system because the most common outcome is that we go through this whole painful process and he gets acquitted, so he gets off with nothing. And in the rare case, which I think it's like 0.03% of perpetrators get convicted, if he did, I was like, what's going to happen. He's going to sit in a cell for a few years and come out more angry and like do this again. And I really thought in the long term where I thought, you know, what if this guy has kids one day? Do I think they'll be more okay being raised by someone who was incarcerated for a minute and is more angry at the world and has no access to like employment and all these things like and hasn't reflected at all and like what got him to commit such violence? Or do I want them to be raised by someone who's, like, gotten help and, like, unpacked some of the shit that led him to justify that violence? So this was kind of, these were some of the things. And then I also was so devastated by the dehumanization he did to me that, I mean, it's an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. I wanted to end the cycle of dehumanization. I was like, this is what has hurt me more than anything in the world. I don't want to participate in continuing this painful thing in the world. It just like mathematically did not make sense to me. Because, because you know, I mean, you imagine that he gets thrown in jail for whatever amount of time, if he in fact is, isn't acquitted, which mm -hmm. is rare. But you, you kind of play it out, don't you? He goes to jail. He, people find out that what he did and they take it out on him. Some people would. He's just beaten up in jail and he comes out a mess and, and nothing's really positive in terms of an outcome. Mm -hmm. So you, you decided to, to be, to be again, compassionate Marley Liss and, and that's mm -hmm. wonderful. So how did the process go from there, from your decision to go that route? Yeah. So it was a bit of a journey because I was going to drop the charges. I still didn't know about restorative justice. So now it's been three years and probably like hundreds of people I've interacted with and no one ever suggested an alternative. It wasn't until I talked to a friend and I was like, I'm thinking about dropping the charges. But when I think about that, I like ball my eyes out. Like I feel like I'm missing something, like that closure is missing and there's deep grief around that. So she said, okay, well, you know, if it was your world, what would you want to happen if anything was possible? And that's kind of when I said, you know, I'd want him to actually go to therapy and like unpack rape culture and learn about consent. And like, I want him to feel deep remorse around what he did to the point that it changes him. And I'd want to sit down with him and have an authentic process where I cry and I voice my emotions and I get to ask the questions I've been wanting to ask for years. And I hear an apology and I, I witness ways that he's doing and a, that apology as well through changes. 
And she looked at me and she said, so make it happen. (laughs) And I had never, like, the bless her fiery heart, like, I had never considered um, validating what I wanted enough to act on it. So her saying that was like, boom, it was like the spark. And then I started, that's when I started doing research. That's when I happened across restorative justice and me being the little like millennial cusp Gen Z person I am, I (laughs) went to Instagram. I went straight to Instagram and I put in my story, does anyone know anything about restorative justice? And (laughs) that's how I ended up getting connected with my lawyer because someone was like, I don't, but I have a friend who knows a friend who has this friend who is is an advocate. And that's how I got connected with him. The moment I found restorative justice, I found an article on it. It was like this huge light bulb moment because I was like, holy crap, the thing that I've been wanting for so long and the thing I've also been invalidating because in the context of patriarchy, like we said, this isn't how you do things. You're supposed to want to kill the guy. And that's not what I wanted. And I judged myself for that. I saw it as like weak or naive. And I was like, this is the same naivety that got me hurt in the first place. I've got to toughen up, right? But it's like not what I wanted. So finding restorative justice, seeing it existed, seeing it has a lineage and in indigenous Jewish Mennonite communities has been done for a long time outside the courts. I was like, wow, this is so deeply deeply validating and exciting. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know much about it when I asked for it. I was just like, we got to move quick. Like the trial is supposed to be in a month and we need to like move quick. So this lawyer and I kind of met up and called a meeting with um, the crown attorneys in the States. They'd be prosecutors. And we basically asked for, for a restorative process. And there were two crown attorneys in the room and one of them was the total embodiment of like traditional patriarchal, like, no, this is not how we do things. Don't you understand that rape is bad? Like, are you not getting it? What's going on with you? And the other one was like, I totally get it. Like the system does not work. It's she's like, I've been a crown attorney for 20 years and I, it's never brought healing and justice together. So they started battling it out for my case And about a month later, I got a call from my lawyer that the one who was pro doing something different had essentially won getting the case. And they were like, this is going to happen. Like your assailant is going to start therapy right away. And eventually you will meet in this restorative circle. This is the part of the movie because the movie's playing in my head the whole time you're telling the story. This is the part of the movie where people are like, yeah, in their seats. Right? They're like, yeah, here we go. Marley, go, Marley, go. And, and, and I missed the piece. It was a she that was pro doing what you want to do. Was it, yes. was it a male that wasn't pro? No, they're both, both women. And, and I oh. think, again, it's such a classic. We're all products of our environment, right? Like, I don't think she's just a shitty person. I don't think that. I think she's just a product of her environment. Okay. Now I'm really, I'm going to get more popcorn and, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, so now it's on as it were, um, at least in theory. So, so I guess continue through the story. What's next? Yeah. So that was actually such a, um, lighthearted time for me. A lot of people will ask about, 
the circle and what was the most healing part of this circle. But I'd actually say that getting the phone call and hearing that this was going to happen was one of the most healing moments because it was the first time since the assault three years earlier that somebody turned to me and said, we actually do care about what you need and what you want and what you need to be okay. And they listened. And so that act alone was so, so, so meaningful. It was so meaningful and like giving me that sense of power and voice back. And it was the total opposite. The way I said during the assault, I said no. And I realized my voice had no power. And in this case, I said, this is what I want. And it did have power. And that was huge for me. So I spent the next like seven months kind of frolicking around, like really just grateful that this was happening. And in that time, my assailant was in therapy and he was doing deep work around learning consent culture, practices for consent and communication, unpacking rape culture, unpacking his own traumas and conditioning that would have led him to the point of justifying that violence, which was also so meaningful to me. And um, so seven months passed and then they were like, okay, we feel he is ready for the circle. Like, let's set a date. And they kind of said, you know, who do you want in the circle? And something restorative justice does so beautifully and honestly is it acknowledges that trauma impacts more than one person. So they say, you know, who else was affected by this? And I said, you know, it's really changed my mom's life, really changed my sister's life. And so I had them both in the room, not just as support people, but people there who were impacted there to get closure as well. So it ended up being me, my mom, my sister, the crown attorney and lawyer who were very supportive, but they weren't there as a crown attorney and lawyer. They were there as human beings who are now part of this process. The circle, uh, define that. Where does this happen? And, and is this something that has happened before? Explain it. Yeah. So the circle is essentially a mediated process and it's rooted in indigenous um, communities and practices, um, sometimes called conferencing circle, sometimes sentencing circle. It's just never been done in a way that's like through the court system. So it's been done by communities outside the system who say, you know, we don't feel safe going to the cops, which is common for so many marginalized communities. So let's handle this on our own, right? So it's kind of this like hybrid process. So yeah, we were there. My assailant was there. He had a friend there. And then there were two mediators who were responsible for, you know, holding the space and creating a really safe context. So they actually met with each of us in that circle one-on-one -on -one beforehand. And then when we got to the circle, it was like a private room, very different from a courtroom, just totally night and day. There were like kind quotes on the wall. There was like a snack table in case you got hungry. It's just much more human. And we actually sat in a circle and they ended up asking one question, just one question, which was what brought you here today? And that's all they asked. And we went around the circle naturally three times answering that question. And that lasted eight hours. That's incredible. Wow. 
Now I'm getting. Just give me a second. Mm-hmm. It's funny how emotions come. You don't even know that they're coming. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful part of it is like the very patriarchal scripted courtroom doesn't make space for emotions around the most emotional things. It says you leave the emotions outside and it's like, that is impossible. And it's damaging for us to try to do it. Yeah. We're supposed to be grown-ups and mature and all these things, but that's Mm -hmm. not mature. Suppressing your emotions, suppressing Mm -hmm. the way you feel. Tell me this. Um, Was there a prerequisite? How was it decided and by whom that he was, that he was ready Mm-hmm. to come to the circle was there that that must have been a consideration yeah so it was essential that he was in a place where he was taking accountability before we'd have the circle so they knew it would be more damaging to try to have the circle if he was like denying that this happened at all so the therapist kind of said hey like he's fully taking accountability for this and it wasn't like it took him 7 months to get there It was more like we wanted an extensive therapy process to happen first. So (laughs) I'm trying to picture this circle and and, and you mentioned the people that were there and it's a legitimate circle and you went around three times and each person said something and it took eight hours. Did he address you visually when he spoke to you? How did that go? And did you do the same with him? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of my biggest fears was that he would kind of just show up to get a check mark. Like, what do you want from me? I showed up and he'd be very um, checked out, kind of like leaning back in his chair, like not really engaged. But he wasn't like that at all. From the very beginning, he was like really engaged. Um, He would tear up in different moments. He would cry in different moments. He'd like put his hand to his heart kind of naturally. He'd do this thing where where I spoke about something really um, hard to hear, really difficult. He'd look at my mom and then look back at me. And it was kind of this interesting thing where the mediators had said, the circle kind of takes a life of its own. And it did. I remember beforehand, I was like, what do you mean? But it did. The first round really felt for me like getting everything that I'd been holding in out, like getting all the toxicity out of my body and just like asking the questions I've been wanting to, naming the grief, naming the impact, like all of that. And then by the time it got to him, he, you know, shared about what happened for him after this and how he did kind of try to minimize it to himself in order to keep believing he was the person he was. He had to kind of minimize this at first. And that would have continued if we didn't have this process. But instead, he ended up um, actually having a close friend go through an assault. And he ended up saying to them, this this wasn't your fault. And the moment he did that for them and like felt that compassion for them, he said it's like his memories unlocked and he was just like flooded with so much guilt and shame and like kind of imagery of what that night was and like was no longer able to minimize it. 
And that's kind of when he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, I sexually assaulted you. There's nothing I can do to take it back, but I hope that being here today can help. And for some people, those might sound like just words, but again, it's this practice of turning towards the survivor and seeing what's happening for them. And for me, that moment was really huge, like more than I knew I needed. I really just instantly started bawling. It felt like a knot untied in my stomach. And I just felt like I was like letting go of so much. Marley, when you use the word survivor, I thought a lot about that before we um, started this conversation. Because to survive, you know, at its at its core means to live on, um, physically be in the world still. But it means so much more than that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you could be alive and in the world and 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 completely shut down and not surviving, in in a in a holistic way, mm-hmm. and that's probably one of the things that could have happened had you not proceeded the way you did. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think it's such a be- a beautiful word to hold as well. And sometimes I don't feel like it's close to me at all, and I'm just me in the world. And sometimes I feel really connected to it. And I think what it does is it also connects me to a whole community, like a whole global community with so much resilience and understanding and empathy. And it also connects me to like a mission of of justice and like a call for a more, a safer, more caring world. So I do think there's like so much around that word. What is your role now in that whole thing, restorative justice? Do you have do you play a role now, other than going out and telling your story as you are here today in the Blue Hotel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after the circle, we were all just in awe. It was really so much more healing and transformational and hopeful than anyone imagined. It was like I always say it. Um, exceeded my expectations, but aligned with my dreams. And that's really how I feel. It's that we didn't even end at that point of him just saying, sorry, we eventually got to a point of like hope and empowerment and calls for action and continued change and like gratitude for one another for catalyzing so much change. And I don't want to say catalyzing because I take credit for the the healing journey I went on, but gratitude for for transforming something so awful into this healing moment with each other. And that was mind-blowing. It was really mind-blowing that we could get to that point. And I remember leaving the room feeling so proud of myself and so lighthearted. And I was able to once again validate the worldview and these expectations of love that I started to put down for so many years. I was like, no, I was right. I was right to believe in like a compassionate world. So it was a really incredible feeling and is a huge contrast to how I felt leaving the courtroom. And so that alone made me say, you know, I think we should be loud about this. Like, I think we should be loud about this. I think everyone should know about this so that they don't go through a three-year process wishing they'd known about it from the start. So that's kind of when we said, let's take this to the media And a few of the people in that circle, obviously myself included, spoke out about it and it ended up happening that six articles came out on the same day. So like Forbes, HuffPost, BuzzFeed, some big 
big articles came out and right away I started getting messages from all over the world, thousands and thousands of messages from survivors all over the world and the constant like, I wish I knew about this. I needed to hear this. This was so healing. This was so affirming. All those things are what really have kept me sharing and being loud about this, um, which is uncomfortable so sometimes, but it's like it's so much bigger than myself in that way. So once that happened, it was kind of like this snowball of momentum that kept building. I ended up being on the news. I ended up flying to New York to be on Mel Robbins' talk show. The U.S. military sexual assault response contacted me and said, you know, we want to hear from you. We want to learn about your your experience. And then University of Toronto hired me and all of a sudden I had a speaking career. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was already in social work. I was already committed to pursuing work around like gender equity and safety in the world. So I think that just continued with all the more fire and heart and and like a really beautiful story that kind of encapsulates so many healing messages. So I really see myself first and foremost as a storyteller, and I just do that in different contexts, whether it's advocacy with a room full of judges in a courtroom, which I did a few months ago, or whether it's with a group of students at a law school or a group of people who want to feel a sense of hope in the world. My story is also being made into a documentary, so that filmed this past April, and it's going to be coming out, and then I also do a lot of work with survivors directly and with people who have experienced trauma who just want to feel connected to their body and sexuality and feel like safe and beautiful in the world, like feel beautiful in the world. So I do coaching work as well and I have a background in somatic sex education as well. And I share online a lot too. I have built um, a bit of a following doing work around all of this and sharing a lot of resources and yeah I'm excited to to keep doing the thing and keep speaking and you know go worldwide with that and just make sure that I always say like I'll stop telling this story when everyone's like yeah we already know this and we fully get it um but that's never <laughs> that's never the <laughs> response that I get and I really do value stories so deeply in that way because I do think that emotional impact is a catalyst for change beyond like academic and statistics and everything. I think moving people is is such a powerful um, way of making change. I'd like to think that uh, the momentum that you've um, pushed um, into being um, is going to be so strong that you're going to have a short speaking career because everyone's going to get it real fast. But I, you know, my realistic mind says you're going to have quite a um, prolific and profound career and you'll be speaking like this to a lot of people for a long time. There's some countries in the world that in many regards are, are I think of a European country or two that have what seems to be a pretty progressive outlook on a lot of things. Um, but there's a lot of countries that are far behind what we've experienced here. So mm -hmm. I can imagine a global pursuit of this um, on your behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I already have some international 
jobs and like go to the states a lot for these kind of things but I think it's just a message that can be applied to so many areas of our lives whether it's the way we handle conflict in our own relationships or it's the way we want the legal system to look or it's the way we want school systems to look or it's the way we want to engage with people on social media or the way we want to make change in the world I just think there's so many different ways people connect with this story so it is always really beautiful to to share it and hear the resonance for that reason one thing uh, i want to just quickly follow up on marley is that um what's the follow-up like or what's the connection like or what's the communication like with the man in the circle as it were what, what's going on with him and what are you aware of now yeah so that is the one thing i would do differently i think Something my lawyer has said before is when we were going through this is we're kind of making this path as we walk it. And that's what I would do differently is I would sandwich it a little more so that we have more after cushioning as well, because I wish the mediators were following up with him and holding him accountable to some of the things he said in that circle. At one point he said, I want to help stop sexual violence. Like this has changed my life. And I don't know if he's doing that. Maybe he is. If he is, incredible. And if he's not, I wish that the mediators were supporting and resourcing and making and holding him accountable to that. And then in terms of us connecting, I think I just um, I just don't need to. I think that something that's really important to say is like my definition of forgiveness includes compassion for the person and boundaries. So I think it doesn't mean that we have to be besties who hang out every day, but I do have like compassion for for him in the world. And I do hope he's like living a good life and, and enacting the change that he spoke of. Thank you. I'd like you to tell us about your coaching programs and the resources that you offer and where we can find out more about them, please. There really is so many things. So I'm going to give you two entry points to find the many things that I'm doing. If you're an Instagram person, that's where I share the most frequently. And it's Marley List. So M-A-R-L-E-E-L-I-S-S. If you check out my page, you'll find plenty of resources. But if you hit the link in my bio, you'll find a link to absolutely everything I offer, which includes a um, virtual community for 2S LGBTQIA plus identified humans. It includes like somatic coaching, which is kind of back burner right now, but it'll come back. It includes booking and inquiring about speaking at campuses, conferences, organizations. And then of course, you can find all that on my website as well. If people go to marleylist.com, same spelling, they'll find a quiz that they can do. It's a two-minute quiz, and it will give you a free personalized resource guide, whether you're interested in learning about restorative justice, sexual violence, you're looking for support for yourself or someone else, maybe you're looking for support around LGBTQ plus empowerment or allyship. Um, if you do this quiz, it'll give you your own personalized resource guide, and then you'll also be on my newsletter. So you'll be kept up to date on everything and you'll get to learn more that way. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. And I'm going to go there often and reference all of your <laughs> resources so that I'm better informed about what's happening um, for this podcast, The Blue Hotel. Marley, M-A-R-L-E-E, Liss, L-I-S-S, Marley Liss. Thank you.
thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for listening come on let's go to the blue hotel please take me by to the blue hotel this has been the blue hotel podcast publishes just about every thursday at midnight eastern follow listen enjoy rate review share repeat till next time i'm jeff woods Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.